Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. One fundamental difference between Judaism and Christianity is that Jews do not accept Jesus as the human embodiment of God. For most religious Jews today, God is disembodied and immaterial. Yet in ancient Israelite and early Jewish traditions, there are plenty of examples of God appearing in human form. For example, the Hebrew Bible contains descriptions of God's body and describes God as having human-like emotions, most typically anger. Frankel fellow Deborah Forger, who studies Second Temple period Judaism and the New Testament, has found many examples of God embodied in human form in later Jewish writings, for example, in the writing of the Jewish philosopher Philo of Alexandria. Now, Philo was heavily influenced by the Greek philosopher Plato, who thought of God as being transcendent, an idea reflected in many of Philo's writings. God is is completely removed from the material realm, and in fact, he often sees anything that has to do with uh, material form or the sense-perceptible realm, which he describes it as being bad or degenerate or less than anything that's incorporeal or anything that's sort of just intellectual or of the mind. Yet, when it comes to his interpretation of Genesis, Philo takes a different approach to God, or at least parts of God, entering the human realm. And specifically, when he looks at Genesis 2, in Genesis 2 verse 7, there's a description of how God breathes the breath of life into the first human, and that that's what causes that human to become animated. And when Philo exegetes this text, when he interprets this particular text, he, he interprets that as this spark, this part, the breath of God actually entering into to humans. And that's what, in fact, causes them to, to come to life. So while he interprets and presents their, the body of, of humans being corporeal and, and earthly, he sees that their, their souls are coming from an entirely different source. That is, they're coming directly from the breath of God. And as a result, uh, this is through the soul, we see an example of how a part of God is entering into the world of, of human corporeality. Forger also looks at examples of God in embodied form in the writings of the first century Jewish historian Josephus, who lived and worked among Romans during a time when Roman emperors thought of themselves and were seen as divine. In what Forger interprets as a sly critique of the divinity of Roman emperors, Josephus describes a fictional encounter between the famed warrior Alexander the Great and an obscure Jewish high priest named Jadua. According to Josephus' story, as Alexander approaches Jadua, the priest is expected to bow down before the great conqueror, who believes himself to be a living god. But instead of Jadua bowing down in worship to Alexander, Alexander bows down before Jadua. Now, the high priest is, is functioning for Josephus in this context as the visible presence of God on earth. So God can't actually be seen, but the high priest himself, because he is participating in God's divinity, because he's the one who is able to mediate between God and the people, because he has been given this special task when not just any time, but specifically Josephus narrates it at the time in which the high priest puts on his high priestly garments and the time in which the high priest has uh, on his head the name of God 
put on his head, the tetragrammaton, at this moment when he's standing in for or representing God, it's at this point when he is able to receive the worship that would traditionally be reserved to God alone because he is, is in some sense, the counterpoint to what we see these other Greco-Roman emperors claiming that that the high priest is the counterpoint to their gods, and instead he is the embodied form of God for the people in his high priestly role. In another Second Temple-era Jewish text, The Wisdom of Solomon, Forger explores how God is embodied in the form of a woman named Sophia. In this text, we have extensive descriptions of the figure of Sophia. Now, Sophia has a long history of questions in in past literature about whether or not she's actually part of God or she's another deified being who stands next to God. But in the context of of this text, Sophia is is operating like God's wisdom. And the text itself, as, as it begins, it starts by showing and narrating Sophia initially when Sophia is presented as being God's wisdom in the text. Sophia is depicted in very feminine ways. But as she enters into and moves away from being in God's presence, the high God's presence, and instead is moving into the broader world, what happens is that she takes on more and more male attributes. So she becomes masculinized or certainly less feminine. And in my research, I find that very interesting that once this figure is no longer seen of as, as sort of a part of God, but functioning for God in the world, entering into the world of materiality, suddenly in this context, she's she's becoming more and more masculinized so that she's embodying God in a masculine way, which I, I find interesting because it says some intriguing things about how Jews in this period in history are thinking about God in terms of gender. Finally, Forger examines the Gospel of John which is, of course, famous for describing Jesus as the divine word made flesh. But Forger shows how, instead of this representing a sharp break with Judaism, the Gospel of John is in fact a Jewish text whose notion of divine embodiment is part of a Jewish way of thinking about God at the time. The Gospel itself clearly is presenting a Jewish Jesus. Jewish uh, Jesus himself um, is called the Messiah, the Messiah, he goes to Jerusalem, he celebrates festivals, he participates in Passover, and all of his followers, Lazarus and Mary, etc., are, are presented as being Jews. So in the text itself, I read the, the Gospel of John as being a Jewish text that clearly has significant implications for later Christianity, but it's important to remember that in its own time, in its historical context, that the Gospel of John was written almost certainly by Jews, and um, it reflects some harsh language, but that's part of this inter-Jewish polemic. So when the Gospel in its prologue describes Jesus as the divine word made flesh and says, halogos sarxagenita, the word became flesh, and then later says that that became flesh in the person of Jesus, in its own context, this was one of the wide variety of ways that ancient Jews were visioning that God or part of God could enter into human or material form. Now, Forger is careful to note that in the text she studies, it's not the entirety of God that's being embodied, but rather aspects or elements of God. I mean, I think it's really important to stress and emphasize that for not just the gospel 
uh, of John, not the writer, not just for the writer of the Gospel of John, but for all of these examples that we've been exploring for Philo and for Josephus, for the writer of Gospel of John, for the, the writer of the Wisdom of Solomon, in each of these examples, none of them present the high God, the Father God, as entering into human and material form. They always present a, a distancing. So they always present an attribute or an aspect of God. So in the case of Philo, for instance, we don't have the, the high God um, interacting or entering into a human body. We have the breath of God, which is imparted into the soul of humans. And then that is interacting with um, the human body. And similarly, in the case of Josephus, we don't have the high God of Israel. Actually, the high priest isn't actually seen as God. Rather, we have Alexander the Great worshiping the high priest in his high priestly role. And specifically, Josephus is including this caveat where he describes how the name of God is written on on the high priest's vestments, and that that is what Alexander the Great is worshiping. In, in the case of the wisdom of Solomon, again, it's not um, sort of the supreme God. Instead, what it is, is it's God's wisdom, God's Sophia, that is then entering into the material world and, and functioning in a masculinized way. Similarly, for even for the Gospel of John, we don't have the Father God becoming flesh, becoming sarks. Rather, what we see in this example is we have the logos and the logos can be translated. It's a Greek word that can be translated a number of different ways. It can be translated as, as rationality or word or thought. So we have God's reason, God's rationality becoming flesh in the person of Jesus. Forger thinks that this way of thinking about God is due to the influence of Greco-Roman philosophy, and particularly of the Greek philosopher Plato. In this period of Jewish history, around the term of the Kahneman era, and even before, all of ancient Judaism, all ancient Jews are, are clearly influenced and impacted by Hellenization. So they're influenced by Greco-Roman philosophy, and certainly by Platonism, and in Platonism we have clearly an emphasis on God's utter transcendence, God's inaccessibility, and, and that is, seems to be filtering its way into Jewish thought as well. Now, Forger's research may not seem very relevant to modern-day Jews and Judaism. Modern Judaism bears little resemblance to the religion practiced during the time of the Second Temple, and many secular Jews today may not think much about or even believe in God at all, let alone God in human form. But for Forger, a Jewish culture marked by diversity is really nothing new. Second Temple-era Judaism was also diverse in its own way. It wasn't a monolith that there were several different ways that they could understand God interacting with humans. And if, if we can recognize that at the heart of uh, Christian belief, namely this idea that in God, <laughs> that in G the person of Jesus, you have God becoming human, that that was not the only way that first century Jews understood that parts of God could interact with humans. And it wasn't the only way that they, they viewed their ability to reconnect with God. That, that places that in a broader conversation and hopefully enables more charitable conversations about religious issues in, in the contemporary sphere. That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. 
The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. We'd love to know what you thought about this episode, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us some comments. Thanks for listening.